Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome back to the Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for the Group of Five and FCS. We are diving back into Conference USA and what we saw from Week Three. Uh, Joe Lundergan, Eric Henry here with you as always. Excited to jump into things. Eric, how you doing today, bud? I am doing all right, Joe. It's been a busy Monday afternoon here in not so sunny South Florida, a little bit overcast here in the evening. But like I said, I cannot complain about yourself. Yeah, it was pretty good, man. I uh, I got to take in. I thought I was going to have like like we've talked about, like to have one game per year that I get to take in as a fan. And frankly, sure. I haven't gotten to do that um, since pre-COVID. I haven't been I haven't been to a college football game as a fan since maybe I want to say it was like Louisville Notre Dame in 2019. But anyway, my wife and I got tickets to Oregon state and Montana state at Providence park, which is the Portland Timbers soccer stadium. Um, And that was, that was fun. Um, We went and we had field level seats, which was cool. But, (laughs) but then as it turned out, the people who decided to stand in front of us, were several Portland Trailblazers players who will not be named (laughs) as well as some other uh, very tall members of the basketball community in in Portland. So I didn't actually see much of the game, but it was very nice to kind of talk a lot about uh, or just get to take in some some D1 football and and talk to Oregon (laughs) State fans and Montana State fans. And hopefully we get more games in Portland sooner rather than later. I, I won't lie. I was not expecting um, the uh, a large Portland Trailblazer contingency out there at a, <laughs> at that one. But, you know, hey, I mean, I guess it's the offseason, so you got to do something. Yeah, um, it is the offseason. And I mean, this gives away who they are, but they didn't they, what, whatever. They didn't do it on purpose. So they've drew Eubanks and Gary Payton Jr. on the team. Both of those guys played for Oregon State. So it kind of makes sense. They, they sure, kind of came to sure. came to support. Um, and they, they had a couple other guys with them. And of course, uh, Wayne Tinkle, the basketball coach there was, was present and they are, they're all very large men. And again, they weren't doing it on purpose, but decided to just kind of post up right in front of our section and we're field level. So we're sitting down and couldn't really see much, but, um, no, it was good. Yeah. Really quick. I was going to say, I mean, I guess I'll give, you know, before we jump into things, I'll give my account of what yeah. uh, taking in a game as a fan, which I, I, I racked my brain. I had not watched a game outside of the Gasparilla bowl last year's Gasparilla bowl. I hadn't watched a regular season game, uh, you know, in a non-work capacity since uh, the American, no, excuse me, the Warren I four in 2017. That was the last time. So it had been a while. Yeah. Um, and as I tweeted out, for those of you who do follow me on Twitter, you, you probably saw this tweet. But for those of you who, who do not, um, I enjoyed the experience, Joe. 
But what I didn't miss was dealing with a drunk guy who's trying to challenge an opposing team's fan to Oklahoma drills there in the stands while smoking his vape. Um, <laughs> you know, that that and bathroom lines, I, I didn't miss. And, and you know, uh, uh, line is probably a mile deep to get a beer. Yeah. So yeah, outside of that, it was a good uh, a good showing by the UCF Knights. So they uh, they took care of Florida Atlantic, and uh, for of course, I'll go back into work mode here and you know represent the CUSA side of things, and we'll talk about how disappointing that was for Willie Taggart's club in a little bit. But yeah, I had a chance to watch that one as a fan, so uh, that was nice. But uh, those things I didn't miss. Yeah, it's it's weird how many aspects of those of the fan experience you forget are not as much fun <laughs> as you remember when uh, you know when you were younger or whatever. So let's let's jump into some CUSA football, shall we? Uh, let, let's start with uh, Indiana beating Western Kentucky 33 to 30 in overtime. Uh, tops led 30 to 22 with 346 remaining in this game. And Hoosiers tied up with a 75 yard touchdown drive at that point. Um, Braden Narvison comes back, has a chance to win it. He misses from 44 yards out um, in OT tops, get the ball first field goal attempt gets blocked. So Hoosiers hit a 51 yarder uh, to win it in OT. So hardly the kicker's fault though, for Western Kentucky critical fumble by Josh Simon with about eight and a half minutes uh, remaining uh, that kind of signified this like critical momentum shift that I talked about a little bit in um, the recap that I wrote about this game. But uh, this, when you couple that with, uh, some other late special teams miscues, some overthrows by Austin Reed at important times. Um, frankly, some not great use of time timeouts on Tyson Helton's part. And kind of the, the run blocking left a lot to be desired throughout the second half as well. So frankly, I wanted to see the tops be more aggressive defensively as well. And it seemed like Indiana was playing with a lot of these personnel sets where they had like three to four guys split out. And it didn't seem like uh, WKU secondary was necessarily like respecting the passability of, of Connor Baslick and in, in Indiana's offense. So that's got to be frustrating if you're a tops fan. It seems like there was a lot of a uh, lot of issues here that that should have been avoided. Joe, really quick. I, I got to ask you here. Um, yeah. I I don't necessarily disagree with anything you're saying, but the tone it almost feels as if you're you're kind of discounting the fact that Western was up by 11 in this game and in the fourth quarter. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they did do a lot right. I it, like, are you saying that in relation to how they finished the game, or are you saying that in totality? They didn't finish well. I mean, okay. for sure. Like, there's definitely some some things you can go back and look at that were good about this game. Um, you know, particularly in the offense, like Daywood Davis had some really good deep plays in the, in the first half. Um, you know, it's interesting. It just, they didn't play a complete game is the issue, right? Like sure, I thought sure. the offense had a really solid first half. I thought the defense left a lot to be desired in the first half. Um, and then you come out in the third quarter and I thought they played a great third quarter all around. And then you hit the fourth quarter and just, it just all kind of fell apart. Um, unfortunately, but yeah, they, they obviously played well enough to have that lead with, you know, uh, less than a quarter remaining, but you know, great teams finish and they didn't do that. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, again, those are all fair points. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. I've not had a chance to watch the entire game. I'm about through, I'm about two quarters through, excuse me. But when you look at the numbers here for Western, you know, they outgained IU in total yards, time of possession, uh, the turnover, turnover battle, of course, they did lose that one, two turnovers to one. But what I thought was super interesting and why I'll be super, you know, curious to see how uh, the last two quarters played out. Joe, not only do they outgain IU, but the time of possession and they get a buck 35 from Kai Robichaud. I mean, this is the game that on paper, 
if you look at it, you say, man, a team that likes to throw the ball a lot, they're going to move fast, yet they're going to win the title possession. They're going to rush for over 200 yards and they're not going to be able to win. So that, and when you talk about in terms of, you know, maybe some, uh, the way they finish and some clock management skills, I think that will be interesting to see, you know, again, for me, we'll watch the final two quarters of this ball game, but all in all, I I, I would definitely say you got to be disappointed if you're a Western fan, because this is one that again, it's almost, I don't want to say the perfect game, but I think when you draw it up on paper and you look at the box score, you think, damn, this is one that we really let slip away. And, Against an IU team that, in my mind, I mean, yes, they're three and zero, and you know, this is no slight to Tom Allen, but I think Indiana's had better teams in the past. Uh, so the fact that you know, the, the, yes, Indiana's three and zero, but this isn't necessarily a, a team that I think is going to contend and do anything in the Big Ten. So yeah, all in all, probably a bit of a, a disappointing loss for Hilltopper fans. Completely agree about the quality of this Indiana team. They're good, but they were definitely beatable. And um, you mentioned the running game. Definitely better than than what I think we've seen from Western Kentucky at uh, a lot of points since they kind of implemented this Tyson Helton type of offense. But you mentioned Kai Robichaud's numbers uh, specifically. I think when you go back and watch the film of this, you'll note that about half of his yardage came from one play. Uh, sure. He had a 60-yard run, um, I believe, in the third quarter there. That was a, a great run. Don't get me wrong. I want to say it was, you know, I, I want to say it was like the longest run by a Western Kentucky running back in at least five years. I don't know that for a fact, but it was close. But yeah, I mean, nothing to, not to take away from Kai Robichaud's achievements in this game, but I don't know. I think it's a little unfair to like, hail the running game as this spectacular thing when you did have one really good play. And then I think in throughout the second half, you had a lot of issues there, especially when they were trying to punch it in, um, uh, punch it in the red zone later in the game there. Let's jump into uh, UNLV and North Texas. The Rebels win this one 58 to 27 uh, UNLV ending this game with 28 unanswered points and defensively North Texas I just had some issues in the second half. Again, you got to play a complete game, uh, which is surprising to me. Uh, and then you look at UNLV's quarterback, uh, Doug Broomfield just ran wild 100 yards passing 211 passing yards. Uh, this was the most points scored in a game for UNLV since 26. 16 and Broomfield in particular, they just made him look all world. I mean, um, you know, our, our mutual uh, Twitter follow guy, uh, (laughs) uh, QB spotlight was talking about his performance throughout this game. And, you know, with good reason, he, he looked really solid in this one. Uh, so North Texas dropped to two and two, they're doing some good things, but again, haven't really played a complete game since that UTEP win to open the season, Eric. Yeah. I mean, you talk about playing a complete game in my mind, (laughs) Um, I don't want to say I, I spoke too soon, but it, it felt when you looked at the way that North Texas closed last year and the way they opened this year, that the Phil Bennett defense was training in the right direction. Yes, they did have two turnovers to two Austin interceptions, but two turnovers isn't enough to excuse, as you mentioned, the 21 to 27 from Broomfield. But in my mind, what's most disappointing is the 368 yards, I believe. On the ground that was allowed by the UTEP, the, uh, UTEP, the North Texas defense. I mean, 29 carries for 227 yards from Aiden Robbins, and then Grumfeld had 100, car- 100 yards on 12 carries and two touchdowns, five rushing touchdowns overall. This is the type of defensive performance that we saw that, quite frankly, was what, you know, really caused North Texas to struggle in the past three seasons, you know, the, 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 the type of performances that got, you know, Clinton Bowen and, and the other coordinators fired. 
quite frankly. So it'll be interesting to see what Seth Luttrell is able to do. But yeah, UNLV ran away with it in the second half, and I will have to take it on the chin. I didn't think this was a great UNLV, UNLV team. I thought this was a team that beat up on some inferior opponents and probably had something to prove. But hey, give credit there. You know, I, I said that UNLV really coming off the Tony Sanchez era. Uh, I thought Marcus Arroyo had his work cut out for him, but they've got two wins. They'll have a chance, you know, with a, uh, a nationally televised game at Utah State next week to show that they are for real. But it, kind of a disappointing performance in my mind, just in terms of the the defensive struggles and moving backwards for Phil Bennett. Yeah, and I'll take it on the chin with you as far as assessing UNLV. I really didn't see that much that was impressive about you know beating up on a bad Idaho State program um, to open the season. But yeah, I mean, I guess like if you're Phil Bennett's defense, what are some of the things that you need to correct as you go into this next week here and try to get back on the right track? Joe, <laughs> I, I almost am kind of at a loss because you look at last year, they have Dion Novell, they have Katie Davis, they have talented guys, but yet in specificity to the run game, the amount of yards they've allowed is just kind of mind-blowing, and Katie Davis is still there this year. He's one of the top players. Now, granted, listen, uh, to be fair, present the other side. When you lose the Murphy twins, you know, and, and some of the guys they've lost, I mean, they did lose a fair amount of defensive talent, but in my mind, uh, Zadori Jackson is a good player from Utah State. Uh, Keelan Crosby is a solid player. Quinn Whitlock is a solid player. Deshaun Gaddy, solid player. So I just don't know if this is, it, you can almost look at this as kind of the similar, um, some similar issues that Charlotte has faced over the past few years, as far as having some guys that are talented, but things just not coming together overall in terms of the defensive scheme. Yeah. You know, so we'll see if they're able to correct that heading into uh, next week here, which we'll get into in the preview section of the podcast, as we usually do. Uh, for now, let's talk about UAB beating Georgia Southern 35 to 21 at Protective Stadium in Birmingham. Career day for our guy, Dwayne McBride, 223 yards on the ground, four touchdowns. Um, just the style of ball that you love to see UAB play, just controlling it, uh, physical Great stuff from McBride in that offensive line. And then on the defensive side, 18 tackles for Noah Wilder. Huge day for him. Uh, and this UAB defense was just all over this Georgia Southern passing attack. And clearly they came prepared based on what they saw from that tape against uh, Nebraska last week. Um, but complete win for them against a pretty good team in Georgia Southern. So Blazers 2-1 and one heading into the bye week. Haven't had to play a conference game just yet. All the main pieces are healthy. And if you are Brian Vincent, you got to be happy with uh, where you're at. Joe, in my mind, when you look at Georgia Southern, yes, let's give credit to Clay Helton for the two and one start, especially as you mentioned, the win over Nebraska. But it, it, listen, they put up a solid fight, but I just didn't think there was any way in my mind. A, let's just call a spade a spade. I think I don't want to take anything away from their victory, but I think that's more indicative of where Nebraska is a program right now than necessarily saying that, hey, Georgia Southern is great. That aside, when you sure. beat Nebraska, it, it, you're obviously going to have a letdown, even though you're facing a really good Conference USA opponent, a, a game that, again, this, these are weird hypotheticals I'm throwing out there, Joe. But if you flipped it and had the loss Nebraska game, you would think they'd still be just as up and just as hyped to face a, you know, a regional rival, a team that is a cream of the crop in the G5 in UAB, but then you flip it, they beat Nebraska. It's kind of a letdown and they say, all right, you know, now we got to come back and face UAB. And as you mentioned, 28 carries, 223 yards and four touchdowns from Dwayne McBride. That's the type of day that you've come to expect from the UAB offense. I will say this, Joe, it, 
I don't want to say it's concerning because this has been the style of offense that they've won with for uh, quite a few years at UAB. Right. But I don't know how sustainable it is. Uh, I guess let me ask it to you this way. Joe, uh, through three games, do you think this UAB team, and again, it's early, but you would say there have been more talented UAB teams in the past, right? I mean, I think what comes to mind specifically is that the, the 2019 and 2020 teams probably more talented than than this UAB team. Fair? At least in, in the early going. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. Um, especially like they, they've had some uh, better pieces on like the defensive front seven. Um, that's totally, that's totally valid. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I'm not concerned because like I said, this is just a team that knows how to play that kind of style of ball. They're deep on the line and frankly, they're deep at the running back position too. If knock on wood, something happens to Wayne McBride, you got Jermaine Brown too. And he has a, a little bit of a different skill set, but he's also very, very solid. So, I mean, Granted, I think they made they made some bad mistakes in that Liberty loss for sure. But frankly, when you look at the rest of the conference and you look at the fact that UTSA has also lost two games, you haven't had to play a conference opponent yet. You know, there's really realistically like not much of a better situation you could find yourself in if you're Brian Benson, in my opinion. Well, Joe, here's my concern, right? I mean, I don't disagree with anything you said there. I just think you hit the nail on the head, and we'll have to have our guy Evan Dudley from AL.com come on and maybe talk about this defense, someone who's on the ground there. Anytime. Yeah, if this is a sum of all parts defense and they're going to rise to the occasion and be great, then this point will be null and void. But they've had more talented guys like Jordan Smith and Chris Mole and others on that defense not to say that Noah Wilder isn't a great player. Noah Wilder is probably a, a defensive player of the year candidate. Starling Thomas, uh, Grayson Cash, Will Bowler, all talented guys. But mm-hmm. I just don't know if this defense isn't as good as the UAB defenses of years past. And the passing game is still going to be what it is, which is 12 of 19 for a buck 25 pedestrian. It, it may be a lot to ask to expect of you know Dwayne McBride. I, I'm not saying he's got to rush for 200 yards every game, but I guess what I'm saying is if if they're going to get 300 yards or 250, 275 yards ish from McBride and Jermaine Brown Jr. combined, then this point would be null and void because that should be enough with their defense. Again, in my opinion, not as great as the defense of the past, but still a good defense. That should be enough to get the job done. But I still think it's a lot to ask. I, I, I guess maybe in my mind, uh, you know, expectations can be the thief of joy. I guess in my mind, I was expecting a little bit more of a not improved passing game, but something a little bit more than 12 of 19 with mm-hmm. Brian Vincent having his reins as the head coach. And we'll see how things play out so early, but it's something that I'm keeping my eye on. I'll put it to you that way. Yeah, that's fair. We'll see what they, uh, if they could evolve, especially with like the skill set that Zeno has. Um, but I mean, I think for right now, if you have as good of a running attack as you have, and the fact that like with Dylan Hopkins as your QB one, anyway, the success of your passing game is again, gonna, um, going to depend on how well the play action works, then, you know, I, I don't see them uh, changing things up too much, especially if they keep, uh, if they keep winning and if, and if they keep winning uh, heading into conference play here. So we'll see. All right. This next one was fascinating. Georgia state and Charlotte, Charlotte wins this one by one point 42 to 41. Uh, you absolutely needed this one. If you're Will Healy and not that we didn't know, but this is another reason why this team is so, uh, this was another, um, 
indicator rather of how this team is just so dependent on Chris Reynolds and his health and his success. Uh, Reynolds, of course, engineered that drive at the end of the game to go ahead by one. Uh, Will Healy thanking the football gods that that Georgia State missed that PAT very early in the game there. And Reynolds, of course, finished with five touchdown passes in this game. Doesn't fix the issues that Charlotte has at the moment, but a a huge sign of life after a, a tough start to the year for Charlotte. So what do you think of that, Eric? a sign of life or a, a, a last hope um joe darren <laughs> it's Green's one here. single heartbeat at the end of the movie where you think that where you think they're dead and it's just so yeah <laughs> darren granger is a good quarterback i want to make this clear like he's a solid sunbelt group of five quarterback Joe, he's not a dude who throws for 343 yards and four touchdowns. I mean, I, I think I look back at his career logs. I want to say the most he'd thrown for in his career prior to last Saturday was something like 220-something yards. He, he's not that type of passing threat. This Georgia State offense has not been that type of offense that's done that. We'll have to have our guy Zeke Palermo come on and maybe uh, elaborate on that a little bit more. I mean, I look at 10 grabs for 203 yards a career day for Jamari Thrash. Listen, I am not trying to rain on Charlotte's parade. The fact of the matter is they got the win and one and three is a lot better than on four considering they're heading to South Carolina. But Joe, none of us entering this year questioned Charlotte's ability to score points. We questioned their ability to keep other teams off of the scoreboard. And again, Georgia state is not necessarily a great team. They are 0 and three, you know, they, yeah, they, they did push North Carolina, but that was an aberration and they, they lost to South Carolina. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, again, I'm not trying to come in here and be, you know, the negative guy, but 42, 41, you know, shootout with Georgia state. It, it, let's put it to you this way, Joe, I, I'll end my soliloquy with this. If we had talked about this game at the beginning of the year, before all of Charlotte's struggles and injuries and whatnot, and said that they're going to be in a 42-41 shootout with Georgia State, you would have said what? (laughs) Uh, I would have been surprised for sure. Yeah. So that's all I'm saying. Um, You know, Charlotte, they they still can accomplish some things. Um, If Chris Reynolds, you know, knock on wood again, let's hope that he can stay healthy for the rest of the year. They... You look at their schedule that we've talked about it. They do have some opportunities to pick up some wins and, and maybe get back into maybe a bowl contention here, but it ain't going to happen if they can't stop teams. So in my mind, that's just concerning. I mean, this is, I talked about North Texas uh, earlier in this, you know, on the pod, this is bordering North Texas from a few years ago, the, whatever year, I didn't want to say it was the 2020 year, I believe that they allowed something like 40 something points a game. 43 to FAU, 41 to William Mary, 56 to Maryland, 42 to Georgia, 41 to Georgia State. Uh, my quick math says that's something like 45 points per game. So they got to get that in check. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it doesn't fix the issues that Charlotte has. But <laughs> to use your thing, it's better to have one win in the column than zero, for sure. I mean, for your <laughs> confidence, it, you need to know that like you can at least you know scrap out some of these battles to the end. Like... I really thought they were a better team than Georgia state heading into this season. So I'm surprised. Like, again, if you had told me this would be the score back in June or July, I would have been extremely surprised, but I mean, they are where they are. So to use the, the language that a commenter used on the recap of this game, it doesn't necessarily cool. Will Healy's seat, but it certainly, you know, helps him. It gives him like one more, you know, uh, piece of ammo to kind of help motivate his team to keep going. If that makes sense. 
that was really profound from the commenter, Joe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks, guy, with Beavis and Butthead as his uh, as his profile. I'll come to you for all my wisdom now. Uh, I'll, I'll just say this. To quote the UCF game notes, a win is better than a loss. So This is true. All right. Uh, MTSU 49, Tennessee State 6. Um, Eric, I'm going to give MTSU credit. They played well, but what they did, uh, well, rather, they did what they should have done. Right. I don't want to give him too much credit for, for beating up on an FCS team. But uh, Frank Pezzett finally gets MTSU a 100 yard rusher in a game that hasn't happened since Shaton Mobley did it against Marshall, uh, I believe, last season. But it's a it's a rare occasion in a Rick Stockstill offense, as we've seen uh, 10 different players caught a pass for MTSU. You know, everything clicked. And again, it very well should have against this particular opponent. Listen, uh, I know you said they did what they were supposed to do, and that is true. But. I have come on and bemoaned the MTSU run struggles we had. You know, <laughs> you just you just look at this thing that we had our guy Sam Dotton on last year, last week, excuse me. And he talked about the fact that Frank Pizant is, is a guy that maybe you can expect some things from. And as you mentioned, the last time they've had a, an outburst like this was from Shaton Mobley last year against Marshall. Shaton had 15 carries for Buck 32 and a touchdown. So Frank Pizant, you know, crossing the, the 100 yard mark. Getting three touchdowns, as you said, it's been a rarity for the Blue Raiders, um, at least from a running back. You know, uh, Asher O'Hara had some rushing outs, uh, rushing uh, um, outbursts. I, I can think of one in particular when they ran for something like 480 something yards against FIU in 2019. So, uh, but getting the, that type of production from the running back has been a rarity. So, uh, listen, yes, they did what they were supposed to do against Eddie George's Tennessee State team, but. Give them credit for being able to, to run the football. Just got to, you know, do it consistently throughout this year. But I will give them credit. I mean, with this, like, first of all, I remember that 2019 game against FIU. That was like just I, that was the one where it like was just raining cats and dogs the whole time. Right. Yes, you're correct. That was I mean, I I'm a masochist, but I love that kind of game uh, where it's just ground and pound against uh, and just in the mud. But um, yeah, with, with MTSU. Um, Good for them to get two wins in a row. Granted, I think they were against uh, two pretty bad teams. And frankly, I was doing some Mountain West research these last couple of weeks or these last couple of nights. And uh, Colorado State, the team that MTSU beat last week, has allowed 23 sacks through three games. That is my that's a mind blowingly bad stat. But um, yeah, for if you're MTSU, you got to be happy with two wins for sure. And uh, we'll see how they take this into uh, take this momentum rather into these next couple of opponents that are going to be significantly harder. All right, let's skip back into some FAU and UCF talk. Eric Owls lose this one 14 to 40 at home to the Knights. Uh, close first half that turned into the UCF show in the second half. 16 uh, 14 Knights was the halftime score, and then it obviously ended up being 40 to 14. You know, the cliche is that UCF wanted it more. But frankly, in the second half, it just looked like they were playing exponentially harder than FAU. Owls gained just 18 yards in the second half, which is absurd. Um, Eric, I, I know you were off the clock, but would love to know any thoughts you have about this game that you took in in person. First off, Joe, I'm glad you enjoyed the uh, FIU MTSU rain fest. Uh, you didn't have to wait for Butch Davis in the rain on Halloween. You're right. I, did. I digress. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just messing with you, Joe. You know, I just give you a hard time. I throw a little, uh, little jab there. Um, uh, no, th- <laughs> this, this game was really interesting. I, it's funny. I actually was more curious to hear thoughts first. However, I have no problem opining. This was the start of dreams for Florida Atlantic. 
They come out, they march right down the field. Zuberry Mobley looks like he's picking up from where he left off uh, against Southeastern Louisiana with the 15-yard TD run right up the gut. And then they follow up after John Rice Plumley, uh, you know, gets a seven-yard TD, uh, TD score. They follow up by scoring at the end of the first quarter with LeJounte Wester, a four-yard pass from Nicosi Perry. Joe, this game turned on a stretch where FAU got the ball after a I believe it was after a fumble, if members serve me correct. Uh, inside the UCF, I want to say it was UCF 15-yard line, maybe 10-yard line, something like that, Joe. And they had four tries to get a touchdown that would have put them ahead. Uh, if, again, if members search for this, would have put them ahead, getting into halftime, something like 21-16. They go four plays. Yeah, I, mean, I was pulling up the, the um, drive chart, just to refresh my memory. They go four plays, getting the ball at the Joe at the FAU at the FAU five, uh, or excuse me at the the UCF five, and they cannot cash in. They had a, a sequence, Joe, where they start to drive with a wildcat. Um, they you know, and, and it's always an interesting decision, Joe, when you take the ball out of your quarterback's hands and you, you you give it to a running back, of course, who is not used to receiving that snap, but. Larry McCammon gets the snap and they can't cash in. They, they, it fumbles the snap. Then they go two plays that go nothing. And then they try to get a, they attempt a field goal, Morgan Suarez field goal. And that gets blocked. And as someone who, again, who was in the stands at that moment, you felt really the momentum of that game, Joe shift. Because in my mind, if FAU gets a touchdown there, the UCF offense was playing very sloppily at, at that point in time. And if you, if FAU is able to get a touchdown and cash in, it's an entirely different ball game in my mind. So you talked about maybe one team playing harder than the other in the, in the, um, in the second half. Uh, and yeah, okay. I just want to quickly correct myself for the memory here, for, for the record here. Uh, UCF threw a pick and then it was, a, it, it was a 23, 14 game. So that was inside. It was in the third quarter and FAU would have made it 23, 21. So any chance of really keeping up coming out of the second half, but the, again, getting the ball at the UCF. So I said it inside the UCF five, they got it at the UCF one, Joe. And Larry McCammon fumbled that snap followed by the Larry McCammon run for two yards and the incomplete pass and the missed field goal at the, the block field goal. So again, just can't emphasize that enough. It was just, and Willie Taggart talked about it post game. Shout out to uh 640 South Florida, AM South Florida, Ken Levicka, Chris Bartels on the call. They do a great job uh, on the post game show. I had a chance to listen to, the post-game interview with Willie Tiger. You talk about the offensive inefficiency. I, I, I don't believe they had more than two or three f- first downs in the second half. So really that's what killed them. And, and you know, kind of going forward here, Joe, I'll be curious your thoughts. Again, to lose this way to UCF, I mean, some would say that was predicted. I, I don't think anyone had them losing, you know, just getting trounced in the second half, but just not be able to get a level of consistency. Um, that's something that in my mind for FAU, you really got to pay attention to as they try to write the ship before they enter conference play. Yeah. I didn't have 18 yards in the second half of my bingo card. That's for sure. Um, you know, for, for as successful as the running game looked in the first half, I'm surprised it, it didn't, it didn't translate to the second half at all. And frankly, we've seen, uh, we've seen Nikosi Perry play really well throughout this first part of the season. So I, I guess specifically as someone who, who watched a lot of that game, uh, what'd you think of, you know, them and, and their approach to the passing attack in the second half? This is one of those things, Joe, where I think you got to give more credit to the UCF defense than anything else. Again, okay. 
why, you know, Willie Tiger mentioned the inability to execute. I don't know what happened in, in the sense of <laughs> it wasn't necessarily that they couldn't because, you know, they ran the, ball, they ran the ball really well in the first half. But in my mind, I think, again, I really think the game just turned on that on that momentum switch where kind of Joe, the entire second half was summed up in that drive. You get the ball in the one. You can't punch it in. You can't run. You get two tries. You can't run. You can't complete a pass. And the field goal gets blocked. So, again, you look at the defensive performance. I mean, Eddie Williams, you know, he showed up, played well with 13 tackles, but just. Really, that sequence in my mind really has kind of summed up the game. So it just was really an inability to execute. I mean, they had some some opportunities. They had a couple drops in the second half, but they just really struggled blocking UCF in the second half, and that probably contributed to their lack of a uh, you know ability to run the ball. Yeah, that makes sense. UCF, they're a good team. I mean, if if dealing with a guy who's as athletic as John Rice Plumley isn't enough for you, then you've still got to deal with a very talented defense. So. Um, I did expect a better performance, but that's that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. All right, next, let's jump into what was probably the most surprising on-field result of the weekend, and that was the Rice Owls picking up uh, another win against Louisiana, um, another win on the season, rather, but they beat Louisiana 33-21 to in something of an upset. Uh, the Owls 6-for-6 six six in the red zone for the second straight week uh, for Rice, uh, combined with the best defensive performance we've seen from this program in a decade. And to dive into that a little further, we've got UDD's own Steve Helwick. Uh, he was on hand to experience the Owls' win over the cage uh, firsthand, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on the show, bud. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, that was that was a remarkable win Saturday night. Not too many people expected Rice to go in there, and honestly, the scoreboard was a lot closer than the game indicated. Rice really punished Louisiana, and they beat him in all facets of the game. There were just three first half interceptions that allowed Louisiana to have the guise of playing within twelve points when it was really a blowout. What was the most surprising aspect of that win for you? The fact that Louisiana's offense couldn't register anything the entire night. They had one drive in the early fourth quarter. That was a complete scoring drive. But their only other scores of the game were off of a pick six and then off an interception where they only had to drive, what, like 16, 17 yards to get a touchdown. So Rice basically gifted Louisiana 14 points. And the Raging Cajuns were held to their lowest yardage output since 2011, just getting 175 total yards. Every run was stuffed. Almost every third down or fourth down attempt went in favor of the Owls, and Louisiana picked up single-digit first downs across the entire contest. Rice beat them in all facets of the game. Turnovers were the only equalizer in that one. And still, the Owls managed to emerge victorious by 12. Yeah, you mentioned the yardage totals. Uh, Rice picked up 449 yards in the day compared to just 175 by the Cajuns. Uh, Also had the ball for 42 minutes compared to just 18 uh, by Louisiana. And, you know, we've talked about on this show before how kind of establishing that ground game and establishing the time of possession battle is so important to like what uh, Mike Bloomgren wants to do. Um, Do you feel like there was definitely an emphasis on that phase of the game when you were taking this one in? That's always what Rice's signature is, is to pound the rock and then just eat up time of possession. But the run game wasn't really working to that great of an extent that it did against USC or it did against McNeese in the first two weeks of the season. What was really impressive was Rice's ability to sustain drives through the passing attack, which hadn't been a strength of the Owls in the Bloom Run era. 
you don't see many rice quarterbacks throwing for 300 yards. I don't have the numbers in front of me, how many times it's happened since 2018, but it's not a very high value. So for TJ McMahon to go into a second start and he throws three early interceptions, he comes back poised and has just a dominant second half where he completes 10 of 12 passes and he's just sustaining every drive by finding connections. And he was finding downfield connections too. So Rice's offense was a lot more explosive than it had been in prior seasons. They had four different receivers log a 20-yard catch. That almost never happens. So they have the, their deepest receiving core they've had in years and their most explosive receiving core they have in years. So I think it's more of the fact that the passing offense was able to sustain those drives was what led to eating up the time of possession rather than a good running offense, which is what you would expect from a Rice team with this classic kind of Stanford-style offense. Right around the beginning of the season, you wrote a profile on Luke McCaffrey and how he made the switch from quarterback to receiver. Uh, he played really well in this game as he has the last couple of weeks. But uh, what would you like about his game and uh, against the Cajuns here? He, he just moves so well with the ball in his hands, and he also moves really well as a route runner. Then you could see some of this aspect of his game as a quarterback where when he had his ball in the hands in open space, that's when he was most dangerous. And that's why that position change felt so ideal to him. And Luke McCaffrey is the team's best receiver in his first season playing the position really ever. He just played a little bit in high school when his brother uh, Dylan was his quarterback. But this is really his first full taste of playing wide receiver. And he's an explosive player too. He had two carries for 26 yards as a rusher, getting one long run on Saturday. Then he had 10 catches, 105 yards, and two touchdowns as a receiver. And he would have had a third touchdown right before halftime if he didn't barely step out of bounds before securing it in the end zone on a really impressive catch. Good route runner, really good job of creating space in the secondary. I think that McCaffrey, I, I think he's exceeded my expectations on what I expected from him as a receiver. I heard players all fall camp saying, yeah, this is an explosive player. He's going to be a star receiver. And through three weeks, you've already seen that. You saw it in the first half of the U USC game. By the 10-minute mark of the second quarter, he already had a team-high five receptions, 51 yards, plays well against McNeese, and then he goes out and has a first 100-yard game as a receiver and his first two touchdown receptions. It's It's been an incredible ride for McCaffrey, and at wide receiver, I think Rice's offense really has that gear to kick it into a more explosive and dangerous unit, which we haven't seen in some time there. For sure. Eric, what would you think of this one? Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting. And again, we're joined by UDD's own Steve Helwick. Steve, I, I want to piggyback off of what you mentioned there with the quarterback play. You know, uh, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows I've been uh, I've critical. Uh, is probably a fair word to put it, and maybe rightfully so in my mind, of, of Mike Bloomgren in the sense that the guy comes from Stanford and a very, you know, uh, I was a former offensive coordinator. Obviously has a great pedigree and offensive pedigree. And the fact that now entering year five, uh, it's been a struggle to find that quarterback, obviously for a myriad of reasons, they've had uh, injuries and, you know, different circumstances at the quarterback position. So Steve, I want to ask you this, um, a two part question, a, how crucial is it that TJ McMahon does end up being the guy here for rice throughout the rest of the year. And they're able to get a, a starting quarterback throughout their entire year for the right for the first time in Bloomgren's tenure and, and B is it fair or foul of me to be as again I'll use the word critical as I have been of Bloomgren considering he's an offensive guy and the fact that he hasn't been able to lock down that quarterback position 
Well, TJ didn't win the starting job in camp. Wiley Green, who also won the starting job in 2019 and 2021, won it again this past fall. And Wiley Green has had some horrible injury luck in his time at Rice. And he got hurt at around halftime of the USC game, putting McMahon in. And it wasn't a great start for McMahon in the USC game. He threw three picks in a five-minute span to start the third quarter. And two of those were pick sixes. So. It, it looked like a rough start with McMahon, but I really liked the way he responded. As Bloomgren said, it's a lot different when you're going into a week of practice with the ones, knowing you're going to be the starter, knowing you're going to get those first team reps. And McMahon really showed improvement against McNeese. Even though that's an FCS opponent, he diced up a team on accurate uh, passing without an interception through four touchdowns that game, nearly 300 yards, which you haven't really seen too much out of any Rice quarterback in the past few years, I mean, against any opponent. So that was a good confidence builder, I thought, for McMahon. And even when he struggled in the beginning against Louisiana, he never lost confidence. So now that you have a quarterback that's essentially done back-to-back games with about 300 yards and three or more touchdowns, you have to keep riding the hot hand in my in my opinion. And I think this is TJ McMahon's team now at quarterback, just because of how well he's played lately, just some of the placement on his throws. I'm just thinking late in that game against Louisiana, where they had to sustain a drive to hold on to the lead late after Louisiana made it 26 to 21 or 27 to 21. And McMahon just threw a dart to Kobe Campbell, one of their transfer receivers just across the middle. And that picked up, uh, 20, 30 yards there. So McMahon has been really excellent, I think, in these last two games. And it's been some of the best back-to-back quarterback games we've seen of any Rice signal caller in quite some time. So I think you got to keep riding with McMahon at this point. And to answer your other question about being critical of the Rice quarterback situation, it's been very difficult because you haven't seen Rice start a same quarterback for about three straight games like in the last few years because Mike Collins had horrible injury luck when he transferred in 2020, and he was he was a pretty good quarterback, TCU transfer. He had Rice's offense more aerial than ever. And then last year, Jake Constantine, Luke McCaffrey, and Wiley Green all suffered injuries that took them out of games. And we saw the same thing in 2019 with Wiley Green and Tom Stewart both suffering injuries throughout the season. So it's been a long injured road for these Rice quarterbacks. And that injury bug has continued into 2022. But if TJ McMahon can stay healthy and continue to display this confidence and effectiveness in the pocket, then I really like this shape of this Rice offense and think this can be a bull team. Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting you talk about the injuries at the quarterback position. I mean, let's take a, a trip down memory lane. Ironically enough, you mentioned Wiley Green. I actually saw his collegiate debut, which came at FIU. He came in for an injury to Evan Marshman. You can talk about Sean Stankovich. You can talk about, uh, as you mentioned, Tom Stewart, Mike Collins, Wiley Green, Jake Constantine, TJ McMahon. It's been a, a long winding road over the past few years as far as the Rice quarterback position. Steve, uh, you talked about Luke McCaffrey a little bit, the receiver position. Let's talk about his uh, his mate there in terms of Brad Rosner. I mean, getting a guy who, again, talk about injuries. He's been banged up for the past few years. But when he had his last consistent action, and I believe it was the 2019 year, if memory serves me correct, he was one of the top deep threats in Conference USA. Just talk about how huge it is for Rice to get him back and kind of that receiver pairing with McCaffrey and, of course, Brad Rosner. 
Yeah, Rosner was a bit quiet in week one against USC, but he had a really nice performance with over 100 yards in week two against McNeese, and he got two touchdown passes in that game. And those were his first touchdown catches since he had a hat trick in 2019 against Middle Tennessee. Yeah, he was one of their better downfield threats. I thought it was a really good pairing when they had him with Austin Trammell back in the day. But Rosner had surgery before the 2020 season when we weren't sure if Rice was going to play football and all that. So he missed that season. And then last year, he suffered an injury in week one against Arkansas. So his sample size has been limited to one game over the past two seasons. So he's overcome that adversity twice, and he's back on the field, and he looks just like he was before, but I think this time he has a deeper receiving core around him with Luke McCaffrey, West Virginia transfer Isaiah Esdale, SCS transfer Kobe Campbell, all playing supporting roles, and they all played good games on Saturday. So I think that Brad Rosner has some good pieces around him, and that can allow Rosner to be pretty good at times. I mean, he's a huge receiver. He's 6'5", 204, catches a really good jump ball in the end zone, had a touchdown last week and 48 yards. So I think that Rosner and McCaffrey, I think that's a really good pairing in this offense. Bloomerin said after the game that this is the deepest receiving core he's had in his time here. And he's definitely correct by that statement because there, there's a lot of different targets. When you have someone who's had the 700 yard season before like Rosner and you have him right now as a second option this season you're in good shape because this team has been hurting for good receivers in some time and they still haven't even returned their leading receiver from last year uh their leading returning receiver from last year and Cedric Patterson the third who should come back pretty soon with an injury Steve you talked about this team in your opinion that they have the offensive pieces to contend for a bowl game just you know want to project a little bit here and look at the rest of this schedule you know they have got Houston coming up this Saturday and follow up with UAB FAU certainly three games that will be very challenging then the schedule you know lightens up a little bit you get Louisiana Tech that's rebuilding Charlotte UTEP uh, finish again with three strong games. Uh, three the games are going to be tough in West Kentucky, UTSA, and North Texas. So they're two and one right now. I, I, again, I'm not asking you to predict the rest of the season, but just in your mind um, of these games that I mentioned, Houston, UAB, FAU, Western, UTSA, North Texas. Do you really believe that, you know, Rice has the, I guess for lack of a better phrase, the horsepower to maybe pull off, you know, two, three, four wins in, in those contests? Or will they need to, pull off a clean sweep against Louisiana Tech, Charlotte, and UTEP in order to really contend and have a chance for a bowl? I think the trajectory I'm expecting right now is around 6-6 six and six entering bowl season, which if they lose to Houston on Saturday, that would mean a 4-4 four and four fairing in the CUSA. But we've seen this Rice team knock uh, punch above its weight before when they knocked off Marshall in 2020 by way of a defense which forced five interceptions. Then we saw them last year against UAB, have a a great start they slowed down a little bit in that game and they still pulled off a 30 to 24 victory in Birmingham so this is a team that's been able to beat good teams that's after beating Louisiana that's really their third pretty quality win of the Mike Bloomgren era on three consecutive years so you really never know when that win's coming but outside of maybe Houston these wins all seem possible on the schedule. Maybe maybe I'd add UTSA to that because that game just looked so lopsided last year and with the returning talent UTSA has. But Rice's defense did such a job against Louisiana. I said earlier they held them to 175 yards. Here's the thing. Rice lost a turnover battle in that game 3-1. to one. It's not like their defense was relying on a heavy amount of turnovers like they did when they beat Marshall in 2020. 
they were just recording stops. And I think health is another big factor with this team because this team has been beat up more than almost any team in college football over the past few seasons. So when you have healthy guys on both sides of the ball, you have a defense that's flying around like this, playing well and containing the pass and the run in their past two games. I really think that you can see four conference wins, no issue against Rice. Whether those wins come against WKU, who has looked vulnerable at times, or uh, North Texas, who had a really rough week last week. I, I mean, there there's opportunities, I think, in pretty much every game on their schedule, maybe save for Houston and UTSA remaining. Steve, want to close with this, uh, not a Rice question, but anyone who follows me on Twitter, and again, cannot recommend you should follow uh, Steve on Twitter. Uh, Hoopers, they always stay ready, correct? Like, you know, when you went out to Cali, you just you just had the ball with you and ready to hoop. I mean, what, what what's the story there? I need to know this. Uh, Venice Beach. Yeah, Venice Beach. Yes. Uh, I was, I, I was uh, with uh, Rob Perez, Worldwide Wob, who okay. is a big follow okay. on NBA Twitter. I've I've been following his mm-hmm. streams closely for a while, and he was just recommending to me when I was in LA to go out to Venice Beach and hoop for a bit. I showed up a little late at night, and I, I grabbed Fat Sal's, which is a rest that only exists in California now. When I went to University of Texas, it was in Austin. So I got some fat sals at Venice Beach because I hadn't eaten it for four years since it closed in Austin. So And after that, I just went into a hoop session. I played a few games with twos and 21. Uh, it was a little late at night, so not too many people were there at that time. And then I threw a few down. Uh, I, I'm 6'3". I think I got a pretty good vertical, which improved this summer. So, yeah. Simple as that, folks. Like I said, Hoopers always hoop. They stay ready. You can find Steve on Twitter at S underscore Helwick. Uh, Joe, anything else we got in the Rice Owls or are we uh, pretty much challenged there on there? You know, again, I mean, I think in, in my mind, Joe, I'll be curious your thoughts on this when we talk about it as far as the, the entire section of the game. Uh, mm-hmm. For them to beat Louisiana, in my mind, it, it at least shows that they are turning the corner in the Mike Bloomberg era. Your thoughts? You know, I it was a great win. Don't get me wrong. But to Steve's point, they always seem to have, you know, one win like this in their bag per year. You know, they beat UAB last year. They beat Marshall the year before. So um, I'm hoping this wasn't just their their one win against uh, that's above their weight to use Steve's verbiage like uh, like we've seen before. Um, but they have a brutal next month of the season coming up. So it's going to be interesting to watch. And Steve, thank you so much for uh, giving us your thoughts on what to expect from the Rice Owls here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course, man. All right. Um, all right. Clemson 48, Louisiana Tech 20. For this one, take away the third quarter. And this is a one-score game. It just uh it just came down to, you know, Clemson having a really good performance in that third quarter to to make this a 28-point loss for the Bulldogs. And, you know, I think Louisiana Tech excelled in some areas that Clemson has actually been really good at defending the last few years. Um Nobody thought they were going to win this game anyway. So again, I think you have to roll with the positives. Uh, some good things from the offense uh, specifically. Uh, Parker Neal looked pretty decent. Uh, Tyler Grubbs had it held his own. Uh, showed why he's on some people's draft radar, uh, making uh, making some tackles and making some good plays against uh, you know the talented Clemson offense there. Um, however. Four turnovers are not among those positives. However, you got to fix that no matter who the opponent is. If you're a uh, Sunday company's offense there. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, that's that's fair. I know you say no matter who the opponent is. I mean, it, it is Clemson, a very good opponent. In, in my mind, two big takeaways. One, they weren't able to run the ball, and that's not really a surprise considering how good Clemson is, especially defensively. That's just something I want to kind of keep an eye on because they did attempt the runs. And coming back, coming off of Marquise Crosby's performance where he rushed for over 200 yards uh, two weeks ago or last weekend, I should say, that's something to keep an eye on. And yeah, Parker McNeil, 23 or 42 for 311, one touchdown. Yes, a lot of that was, you know, you're playing from behind and you're completing passes. But especially you're you're dealing in an offense that is new and all these players are getting adjusted to it. That's really what I was looking for, just to see kind of the progression of this offense. So in my mind, Joe, I feel like at least they've done one thing they've established with their quarterback is I think it is going to be part. It has to be Parker McNeil going forward. So let's take a look and see how they are against USA UTEP. That's been struggling in North Texas. Then I think we can get a better read on this team, but all in all, not too much. You can take away from here in my mind. Yeah, fair point. It's a similar story with a lot of these games against high level P five opponents. And when you play the, the number five team in the country and you are a young team like Louisiana tech with a new coach, uh, sort of adapting to a new system. Um, again, you just have to kind of take the positives from this and then forget about the negatives because it doesn't really reflect the type of competition you're going to play the rest of the year. All right. Now let's talk about Texas and UTSA 41, 20 Longhorns was the final in this one. Um, I recommend reading Sumner McDaniel's recap from this one on underdog dynasty really goes through kind of, you know, the, the, the nitty gritty of, of what happened here and why UTSA kind of ran out of juice in the second half here. Um, but that's kind of to be expected when you play a talent like Bijan Robinson, you know, to, <laughs> uh, I believe it was Denny green back in the day uh, with the, uh, they are who we thought they were. Was that Denny Green or was that Romeo Cornell? Uh, you are. Uh, you had it right with the first. Um, Denny Green. Black. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was funny. I'll give that to you. Um, they are who we thought they were. Uh, a dominant day for Bijan Robinson against UTSA. <laughs> Um, really the thing that was tough to see for UTSA in this one was, was just, uh, the drop in quality of the performance from the first half to the second. And that's gotta be frustrating if you're Jeff trailer. Um, I think Texas is better than a lot of people want to admit myself included, um, especially on that offensive side of the ball. It's tough to keep up with. Um, but you know, hopefully they don't let this one linger for too long, but I know it's got to hurt when you play uh, a team that, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. There's so much crossover between Texas fans and UTSA fans. Like you could kind of feel that tension bubbling up um, even just online <laughs> throughout the week. So this this one's going to sting for a while. First off, uh, RIP Denny Green. Uh, gone yeah. away. I didn't realize Denny Green was only 67 when he passed away. I, I, it's, the only reason I'm mentioning this is that is what Dennis Green was known for, essentially. But he was a really good coach. He led the Vikings for, for a really long time. So Drafted Randy Vikings. Moss, yeah. Yeah, the flag. I should, should at least honor Dennis Green in, in that that way. Um, Joe, you, you you stole my thunder. I mean, Bijan Robinson is that good. I really am not going to make too much of this loss. Yes, this is a game that I thought that UTSA could win uh, when we entered the year, but I don't think anyone uh, expected that performance from Texas against Alabama that they had, and you know, clearly even though Hudson Carter the start for them. They're able to, you know, and I think, Joe, especially considering how they lost to Alabama, it, it was almost unenviable if you're UTSA to come in here. And, and because in my mind, when I saw this game being winnable, I thought that they would get trounced by Alabama and, and then, you know, they would kind of catch them in a vulnerable state. But 
nah, this, this is going to be a motivated Texas team. Bijan Robinson, again, is that good. Um, so uh, I, I'm not really going to make too much of this game. It, it just almost was kind of a, as you mentioned, Reed Summers uh, recap. We did a great job there, but almost kind of the perfect storm of, of just, you know, walking into this game. I don't think UTSA really was going to be able to compete unless they played an A-plus football game. That's obviously not what they had. No, no, it was not. Um, so, yeah, check out that one if you're interested in kind of more of the details there. But um, not UTSA's best day for sure. And if you're going to play a team that clearly has the kind of talent that Texas has, then uh, you need to have an A-plus day. Um, speaking of days that were not A-plus by CUSA teams, UTEP losing to New Mexico 27-10 to uh, in Albuquerque. I was very surprised by this result. Not as surprised as I was by the Rice result, but very surprised. And and this concerns me for what uh, we're going to see from UTEP for the rest of the season. Gavin Hardison had three picks, not one of the better games that we've ever seen from him. Seven turnovers in this game from the UTEP offense. And that's, that's inexcusable. If you're making the New Mexico Lobos look like the 85 Bears, then you need to do some soul searching if you're UTEP, frankly. 76 yards total three rushing yards in the first half for UTEP three and UNM's offense wasn't particularly lethal here either Uh, Lobos missed opportunities to possibly even win this by 30 so UTEP needs to get some stuff figured out here especially you know the accuracy issues with Hardison the running game I I don't care you know who you have in the backfield if you have three rushing yards against New Mexico that's that's terrible so uh bad bad loss for UTEP here yeah, Joe, I wrote about it in my three things we we learned from the Conference USA weekend. Uh, I, I this is and Joe, please, you know, kind of be the the, you know, um, I guess, arbiter in, in this sense, not the arbiter, but kind of like, you know, just keep me in check here if you think I'm going too hard. But OK, we both were at Conference USA media days. We both were in the room when I asked UTEP head coach Dana Demo about his, his quarterback, Gavin Hardison, and kind of what he expected, and especially considering this his third year as a starter entering his third at the time entering his third year as a starter and concerned the fact that they lost Jacob Cowan yep. you know not that I'm sitting here expecting Dana Dimmel to show concern I mean I, I think everything he said was was valid and true but it's no secret and even you know Steve Kaplowitz from you know ESPN El Paso wrote about this as well it's no secret that this team, for however talented you want to believe they were entering the year, yes, they uh, unfortunately don't have Breon Hayward, but for however talented you, you thought they were coming into the year, it was all going to ride on Gavin Hardison's shoulders, in my mind, his development. And he's looking a lot like the guy who was, and not to say he was ever a bad quarterback, he was just always a guy who you saw a lot of potential in, but needed to take that next step. Joe, we were in the room with him in media days. He looks physically the part of a quarterback out of central casting, you know, 6'3", 215, got a strong arm. But he's a guy who in his career has completed something like 52, 53% of his passes. He's been like one for one or like one and a half to one in terms of TD to INT ratio. And yeah, I'm not all, all seven turnovers weren't on him. He only threw three picks. I say only in air quotes, but yeah, again, in my mind, Joe, if they get even average quarterback play, they might be two and two in this game or two and two in the season. Instead, they're one and three and everything as far as whatever expectations you had for UTEP entering the year. It, it, it's really in question now when you look at the rest of their schedule and their quarterback play. 
Yeah, I don't think you're being too hard at all. I think when you have the arm strength that uh, that Hardison has, you've got to have at least some measure of accuracy in order to to get that done. I mean, I, I wrote about, you know, I, I did a preview for their game against Boise State coming up last night, but Hardison's only completing like 48, 48% of his passes, so less than half. And that's that's got to be better, especially if the run game isn't dependable enough to get you more than three yards, three yards in the first half. And you have Ronald A. Watt and Deion Hankins. That's horrible. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, it, it, there needs to be another step in progression there. Obviously, having Jacob Cowling on the team last year was great. I think a lot of quarterbacks um, that have the kind of arm strength that Hardison clearly does really benefit from having a guy who can, uh, you know, just have that kind of speed and be that deep threat, uh, be that that deep threat outlet <laughs> that that Cowling is and, you know, continues to be for for Arizona this year. Um the fact that they don't have nearly the quality of receiver definitely helps. But at the same time, like you have to make those adjustments if you're Hardison and, and, and if you're UT and if you're UTEP's, you know, coaching staff as well, you need to change your play calling a little bit, uh, do the things that are going to work. Um, because again, 79 yards in the first half, even against, uh, a, you know, a team that, you know, historically for as at New Mexico hasn't done anything since Brian Urlacher in the nineties, like, it's got to be better. There's no like you are past the point where you can say, oh, we're UTEP. Sorry. Like, no, you played great last year. You have to turn into better performances than this. Absolutely agree. All right. Before we jump into the preview section for next week, um, first of all, I want to thank once again, Steve Helwick for jumping on to talk about that rice game. Big win for the owls. Uh, however, some, uh, you know, unfortunate, you know, uh, allegations made against, uh, some of some rice players, uh, by, uh, a few of the different, uh, Louisiana football players over the weekend. Um, for those that don't know a few different players, um, accused, uh, Rice offensive lineman Braden Nutter of some racist comments that uh, he's allegedly made towards them during the game. And, you know, that supposedly that's what caused them to uh, kind of take some swings and, and get penalized for some unsportsmanlike conduct uh, in the game. Um, so, you know, I, I guess we'll start here. My thought is one way or another, Rice absolutely needs to address this um, with Nutter himself. I'm not sure if. Well, let me let me put it like this. Regardless of if it happened or not, it needs to be addressed, right? Bloomgren, in my opinion, Bloomgren needs to you know confront Nutter about this and and see what happened, or at least how he's going to react to this. In no circumstances is what he's being accused of okay, obviously. Um, and you know it it's kind of gets deeper into like kind of the physical. Um, What's the word? I mean, it's I mean, if you look at the video, that's uh, kind of accompanying a lot of the art, the article that's uh, on ESPN Lafayette about this. Uh, there's some inappropriate touching that uh, Nutter's doing on uh, some of these players as well. And that's weird. But frankly, we, we've seen uh, a lot of football players try to agitate the other side by doing that kind of stuff before. It's what's really kind of pushes this over the edge is obviously the just the supposed racist comments. So it's I, frankly, I, there's no place for that in the game. Um, it, it shouldn't be happening ever. And frankly, if this happens, I think a, a public apology needs to come out from from them um, and just address this one way or another, because, you know, obviously it's it's messed up. It can't happen. Joe, so here's in my mind, here's the situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, for the benefit of our audience, for those who may not know, I am black, just for the, for the people who may not, may not realize that. Um, this is, 
whenever stories like this arrive, Joe, it's always makes me a, a little bit uncomfortable. And here's why, because this amounts to uh, he said, he said, and in those types of situations, especially in an athletic event, you very rarely get to the bottom of it. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, unless this is a rice, Louisiana group of five game, this is not nine. This is not, you know, Monday night football where you got 22 players mic'd up and there's mics everywhere and boom mics and whatnot. You're not really going to get to the bottom of this. So while mm-hmm. I, Agree and respect your opinion when you say that Mike Bloomgren has to confront Nutter, confront the player. Uh, it, I don't even listen. I, I don't necessarily know how you go about this because unless Nutter's going to come out and be like, yeah, I, I messed up. I, I, I did it. You're not really going to get to the bottom of it. And then it's just a he said, he said. And Joe, you don't even you can look at examples, whether it's, you know, we've had professional players say that that fans have said thanks to them, or even we can look at the most recent incident and grant, this is not player versus player on player. This is, you know, fan directed player, but the situation at BYU where the BYU athletic director or BYU, I, let me, excuse me. I don't want to attribute it to the AD when I'm, I'm spitballing here, but mm-hmm. a statement came out from BYU that they did not find any evidence of said behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. That's in my mind, that's all you're really looking at here. So I'm not sitting here saying that, a player, uh, this is in no way diminishing the, the allegation, the accusation. And I'm not saying that a player shouldn't come out and say, you know, what they heard, if that's what they heard. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying in the greater grand scheme of things, unfortunately, unless, and again, none of these guys were mic'd. Mm-hmm. So you're not necessarily going to get to the bottom of this unless, you know, you have multiple accounts and players on, on, on Nutter's own team, Rice's team we're going to say that happened. So all in all, I'm not saying it's much to do about nothing because that diminishes the allegation. But at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, the reason why I always get uncomfortable when, when you have, especially when it's player on player is you very rarely get to the bottom of it. And then it's just, you know, listen, for anyone who comes to this podcast, you don't come for, uh, you know, thoughts outside of football. We get that. But the fact that it's unavoidable here in the climate, social climate we're in right now, Mm-hmm. it's just another log on the fire and it ends up being, you know, something you can't prove. Yeah, no, all solid points at the end of the day. That's more than likely what this is going to come down to. It's just disappointing. I mean, we're never really going to know what exactly happened, but it sucks to see. And frankly, it has no place in our game. Um, this, this happened a couple of years ago too. I think with, uh, oh man, I'm sorry if this wasn't the right teams, but I believe it was South Alabama and Appalachian State. It was two Sun Belt teams, um, and really there was no way to prove whether or not it didn't happen. So it's a it's a similar circumstance, but I don't know. It just sucks. I frankly, I'm not saying. I definitely think this has happened before because Eric, you and I have both played. We've both played those kind of. You know, there's no uh, word that I can say that won't get us an explicit rating to describe how I feel about people that use that kind of language, but because I grew up with a lot of them. But anyway, it just sucks to see. And I hope and frankly, you know, I hope there's just some kind of misunderstanding here because it's a crappy situation. All good points on your part. Um, All right. Football. <laughs> let's let's talk about some previews. Um, Friday night, we got UTEP. And Boise State kicking things off on CBS Sports Network at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, 
Boise minus 15 and a half heading into this game. And what's what's interesting about this to me is I think you have a Boise State team that's coming in with some questions about the offense. Hank Bachmeyer's kind of been the regular starter for them, or at least he that was the thought heading into this season. Against Oregon State, he got benched uh, for Taylor Green. Um, and also, Hank Bachmeyer got hurt against UT Martin last week. And in a kind of a surprising turn of events, at least for me as, as someone who uh, whose main concern isn't Boise State football, uh, when he got replaced, uh, when he got hurt, the crowd cheered. And uh, the Boise State players obviously were pretty upset by that. But, you know, just to keep it on on Taylor Green here, very mobile quarterback had broke off a really long touchdown run against Oregon State in week one and adds a, a dimension to the offense that is um, worth keeping an eye on. You know, I, like we talked about with like North Texas, keeping a quarterback that's mobile um, in check is, is hard to do. And that's what you're going to get in Taylor Green here. But for UTEP, um, they got to be more accurate if they want to win. Frankly, I think this is a Boise team that outmatches them in terms of talent. So they, they have to play a perfect game if they want to have a chance. Yeah, I mean, really quick on your Hank Bachmeyer point. Obviously, that's disappointing to see. I mean, I remember Hank Bachmeyer's first start at Florida State. He got the crap beat out of him, and they may still manage to, you know, stand in there. So he's uh, been tough as nails throughout his Boise career. But yeah, as we talked about earlier in the podcast for UTEP, well, Jeff, going to be interesting to see on a short week how they bounce back offensively. Gavin Hardison, can they cut down on the turnovers? We shall see. Um, I would love to sit here and say I'm thinking UTEP has a shot, but after the way they've started it, I got to go Boise. Saturday, late start for us. We got 3.30 Eastern CBS Sports Network, Western Kentucky hosting FIU. Uh, tops minus about 31 points heading into that one, depending on what sports book you use. Uh, but the tops... Um, you know, I think I like where their offense is going. I think their defense has got to get some stuff figured out. Eric, as, as you know, and I'll give you a chance to opine on it in a second. FIU still figuring some things out, particularly on the uh, offensive line. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that's where we're going to see guys like Juwan Jones um, have some have some pretty good days against the and in a pass rush uh, type situation here and uh, probably get the tops a win on their home turf. Uh, excuse me, if, if you heard that, I said, holy cow, and I heard that spread. I didn't realize it was a 31-point spread. I mean, it, rightfully so, but I, I guess I, I didn't I didn't realize it was that large. But I will be there mm-hmm. live at Hutchins Smith Stadium, Bolton Green, Kentucky. Get to kick it with my guy, Jared McDonald. It would be a, a fun reunion of uh, Conference USA beat writers, and I will check out those uh, those shrimp things, Joe. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah it's this weekend. Um, unfortunately, that will probably be the most entertaining thing of the day there in Hutchins and Bowling Green. Yeah, I mean, no reason to push back anything you said. I think especially with an FIU offensive line that is starting a true freshman. I mean, Joe, like I said this last podcast, you, you could appreciate this. A true freshman who yep. started his first career game at guard and then had to start at center. We'll have to see who gets the start on the offensive line for FIU, but either way, they're really inexperienced. I mean, they had a kid, Sam Hill, who was playing at uh, NIAA, NAIA Division II last year, Reinhardt University. He started a few weeks ago against Texas State. So the Western Kentucky defensive line should feast for FIU. Just want to see how they're going to bounce back. Who's going to start this game? Mike McIntyre's daily presser, uh, weekly presser uh, is tomorrow for those of listening. We're taping this on Monday evening. So we should find out who will be in contention to be the starting quarterback. But yeah, uh, this one, Western should roll, should be bounce. It should be a bounce back game for them after their disappointing loss to Indiana. 
I did not even know NAIA had multiple divisions. Learn something new every day. Um, and we got number 25, Miami Hurricanes hosting Middle Tennessee State at 3.30 on ACC Network. Hurricanes uh, minus about 26, 25 and a half heading into that game. Um, you know, Miami, um, tough, tough loss to Texas A&M this past week in College Station. Didn't see that coming. I kind of thought they would take care of business there. But, uh, you know, this is a team that, that really needs a win um, based on the last couple of results. I think they'll get it against the Blue Raiders. But that being said, you know, I think uh, Middle Tennessee has the potential to um, keep it under that like four score margin that they're uh, that they're giving there. I really like what I've seen from Jordan Ferguson and, and Dunnigan and the rest of that defense there, particularly that front seven. I think they're going to give that uh, that offensive backfield uh, for Miami some issues. And um, if they can do that and maybe give, you know, Chase Cunningham some time in the pocket to figure some stuff out. Um, then I think they keep this one closer than people think, but I do think Miami's going to win. Uh, I'll keep it short and sweet here in South Florida, the hurricane contingency, they will melt down if they do not win this game by at least four scores, because mm-hmm. they're already kind of in panic mode as is with all of the injuries in Mario Cristobal's first year at the helm. Yeah. I, I do think that middle Tennessee has the potential to keep it close, but I do think again, just given where the hurricanes are right now, and you said a disappointing game at Texas A&M. I guess I, I was one of the people who expected that game to play out the way it did, but nevertheless, I, I think they really are looking to bounce back in a big way. So obviously give me Miami, but um, I, I do think, I don't necessarily know it'll be four scores, but I think it'll be a decisive win for the Hurricanes. And we have Memphis hosting North Texas on ESPN plus Memphis favored uh, minus 11 and a half there. Um, Seth Hennigan looking really good so far. Uh, Memphis, you know, they, they got wins against Navy and Arkansas state under their belt did lose to Mississippi state in week one. Um, you know, I think Memphis is compared to some of the teams they've had in the past. I think they're kind of a middle of the road team this year. So this should be interesting. Um, that being said, what I, what we've seen from North Texas's defense the last couple of weeks has not been great. They've got to really bring it. Um, I think there's upset potential here. And I say potential because I don't feel strongly enough to make it like my official pick or whatever, as official as whatever this is, is. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I think Memphis takes this, but North Texas has got to show some improvement on the defensive side of the ball and, and keep Hennigan in check. Undoubtedly, I think Memphis wins, but that's exactly what I'm looking for. Can North Texas, Joe, this can be a team that finds its stride in the second half of the season every year, especially defensively. They got to get it going. They've got to somehow defend the run better than they have and not allow the amount of yards and points. So that's something I'll be keeping an eye on, but I will take the Tigers. Yeah, for sure. And then we have UTSA hosting Texas Southern at 3.30 Eastern on Stadium. Um, No spread set for this one as the Roadrunners face another local-ish area team. Uh, Texas Southern making the drive up from Houston. Um, You know, from what we've seen from Texas Southern, we we saw them play North Texas earlier in the year. They lost 59 to 27 in uh, in that game. They they did get their first win this past week against a a pretty bad Southern team, 24 to 0. Um, so at least they have that under their belt. But UTSA, clearly the better team. I think they take this week to, uh, you know, reset some of the frustrations that they had in that Texas game. And, and we see, you know, Frank, uh, Frank Harris and this offense um, get back to their old ways. What will I be looking at? This UTSA offensive line that has been a strength for several years, a little bit banged up. 
Just want to mm-hmm. see how, you know, they kind of round into form against, as you mentioned, a Texas of an opponent that is not as nearly, uh, you know, formidable opponent. So give me the roadrunners. Uh, definitely want to see, you know, again, how that offense line performs and how the run game performs. And then we have a rivalry game. We have Houston hosting Rice at six o'clock Eastern on ESPN plus uh, Houston minus 17 and a half heading into that game. Um, you know, been a rough go of it for the Cougars these first couple of weeks uh, after beating UTSA in week one. Uh, they lost to Texas Tech in double overtime. And in this past week, they got handled by Kansas of all teams. So a uh, rough go against some future conference opponents for them. Um, you know, w- with rice, it's going to be interesting to see if they can keep up a lot of those good habits that they seem to have established the last couple of weeks. Like we were talking about with Steve Helwick, you know, can they keep that offense, uh, you know, in rhythm? Can they keep, uh, you know, can they keep Luke McCaffrey in, uh, in that heater that he seems to be having? Can, can McMahon keep it up? Can they just continue to establish that, that control on the offensive side of the ball and keep the time of possession in their favor? So that's what I'm going to be watching for. Um, I think Houston gets back on track though and wins this. Clayton Tune is too good to stay down for long. This team is very good. Um, despite their record, you know, I know a loss to Kansas kind of raises some eyebrows and it should, but I think Houston wins this one. Um, but hopefully for Rice's sake, they continue some of those patterns of behavior that I mentioned. First off, shout out to Steve Helwick, who twice this year. Joe has covered games, gone cross town to go from the Rose Bowl to the LA Memorial Coliseum. And then last week did the daily double with Houston and Rice. So the fact that he does not have to go cross town, this has got to be very convenient for him. What will I be looking for from Rice? You talked about it, Joe. We've seen too many games over the Mike Bloomgren era with all the injuries they've had at quarterback and the revolving door and different players where they look to have a glimmer of hope. And then it's followed up with a, nine for 23 passing for 107 yards and two interception type game. I expect Houston to win this game, but can they build upon the success they had against Louisiana? That's what I'm going to be looking for in my mind. I do not envy Steve Helwick with what gas costs right now. He good for you, dude. If, if, you, if you're having well, no issues with that. Yeah. Well, luckily, well, luckily Joe, I, I believe in, I, I can't remember if he said this during our taping, but uh, I think Rice and Houston are like the two closest campuses in all of CFB or something like that. So at least he got lucky there, but still, that would make, that would make sense. I, I haven't, I know Houston and Texas Southern are pretty close too. And then I, way back in the day, I remember, uh, going to a couple central state games back in Ohio and them and Wilberforce are like l- less than like a hundred yards <laughs> apart from each other. So um, I know it's a different level, but anyway, uh, yeah, Steve, congrats to you on just being all over the place, I guess. Uh, South Alabama hosting Louisiana tech on ESPN plus seven o'clock Eastern uh, South Alabama minus 13 and a half heading into this game. Uh, I think the Jaguars are my pick. I'm pretty high on them. Right now, uh, they lost a heartbreaker to UCLA this past week. It lost by one point, came down to a botched fake field goal attempt on their end. That's that was kind of the the shift in momentum that uh, the Bruins needed to take that one. Um, but I really like their offensive backfield right now. Uh, Carter Bradley, I believe, is their quarterback. He's he's pretty solid. Uh, came down from Toledo in the offseason. Um, so I, I think he's going to have a good day. You know, this this is going to be a test for the Louisiana Tech defense specifically because, you know, I, I, I think their offense is doing some good things. Um, but ultimately, I think South Alabama's got them overpowered just a little bit. 
Yeah, Joe, you know me. I don't like to have loose ends. So let me very quickly tie up that uh, that last portion there. Uh, the distance from Rice Stadium to T-E-D-C, T-D-E-C-U Stadium. I know it's going to trip me up. 3.1 miles. So you know what? Okay. I, take, I take back my um, kudos of Steve Helwick. If you're a real man, you would have walked. So, <laughs> never, nevertheless. No, I, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Steve. Uh, no, you talked about it. The fighting Alyssa Newtons of South Alabama. I mean, they, they had, a, as you mentioned, um, a tough way to lose at UCLA. In my mind, for Louisiana Tech, this is a game that I think at Hancock Whitney Stadium, this should be the first real game this year that we really get a chance to see where they are as a program. And how about this? I'm going to take Louisiana Tech. I, I, I think given, you know, what they have on defense, Tyler Grubbs, you know, on offense, Smoke Harris and others, it, this could be a game that if if they're able to kind of keep the synergy they've had over the past weeks going and get that run game going with uh, Marquise Crosby, uh, I'm going to go on a flyer, take a flyer here and then take Louisiana Tech. I may regret this, but uh, I'm going to take Tech. Okay, upset alert. We'll see how that goes. And then we have South Carolina hosting Charlotte on ESPNU, 7.30 Eastern. Gamecocks favored minus 22 and a half for this one. Um, you know, I think this should be kind of a breeze for Shane Beamer's squad. We've talked about the issues that Will Healy and his team are having uh, through this first part of the year. Uh, I don't see those uh, defensive issues in particular improving much against this Gamecock team. Um, I think this is a, a chance for a Gamecock quarterback Spencer Rattler to kind of improve his draft stock um, as much as that's fallen um, against, a, against a rough defense for Charlotte. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of what we're dealing with here, in my opinion. A, a Gamecock team that's um you know just just kind of a, adding a, another win to get back to 500 for them and charlotte drops to one and four yes the thing that i'll be looking for and, and i am there with you i will be taking charlotte in this contest i assume i'll be taking south carolina's contest over charlotte the thing that i will be looking for is the charlotte defense um it's not a matter of can they compete? It's how will they look? Are they going to look completely overwhelmed and overmatched? Or is it at least going to be a situation where they show some I don't know, steady sign of progression. Because as I, you know, Joe, you could probably call me the negative Nancy or, you know, Debbie Downer, whatever idiom you want to use. Um, yes, okay. I, I expect Charlotte's offense to be able to score. But defensively, they, they have to at least look competent. So uh, I'll be keeping my eye on that. All right. Uh, for the Charlotte fans visiting Columbia, be careful in five points. That's all I'll say. Um Purdue hosting FAU on Big Ten Network, 730 Eastern. Boilermakers minus 19 and a half. Um, listen, Purdue been pretty bad on defense these last few games. Uh, if you look at their schedule, they dropped a game to Purdue uh in the opening game of the season on september 1st 35 to 31 it came back off of that and beat indiana state 56 to 0 whoopie doo and then uh lost to syracuse by three last week so obviously defense an issue for that team uh hopefully fau can kind of take advantage of that and, and get some points on the board here against them um you know, it, it's tough to pick against a Jeff Brom team, knowing how uh, quickly they can score, especially against uh, teams that maybe don't have as uh, as tough of a defense as what you're going to see typically in the Big Ten. Um, so I'm going to pick Purdue. That being said, I, I do want to see some offense, uh, I, you know, based on what we saw in the second half against UCF from FAU last week, you hope that uh, that offensive production gets back into gear a little bit before they get into their full conference slate. Yeah, um, there are quite a few things I think I'm looking for from FAU here. Really, Joe, 
with the way that, you know, again, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, that chatter and Boca, I mean, the fans are, are, are frustrated. I, I saw some fans post game could say that this is like the Charlie Partridge era. Uh, I think that's a little bit stiff in my mind, but I just want to see how this team responds, you know, because you can't live in the past, Joe, but I don't think they are 26 points like lesser than UCF. I think that game got away from them. And are they two, three, or possibly even more scores less than Purdue? As as much as we think, or I think, the talent on that team is there, uh, the proof is what you put them on on the field on the scoreboard. So I am picking Purdue, but they can either come in there and and look like a really competent G5 team, put up a fight, as we've seen uh, plenty of G5 teams do (laughs) in the early going of this year, or Mm -hmm. they can look like a team that's going to get run out of the building. So we'll see. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, FA, you have a chance to be the favorite, the second favorite team amongst every other fan base in Indiana. Eric, it is. I obviously I grew up in Ohio, spent a lot of time in Kentucky, didn't spend as much time in Indiana, but I have a lot of friends that live there now. And every time I go back, I am I go back to visit my friends that live there. I am taken aback by just how much the fan base of every other team in Indiana, IU, Notre Dame, Ball State, all these other teams just despise Purdue. It's wild. And I, I guess that comes from like, you know, they're the, you know, they're the engineering school. They're kind of the, the rich kid school. I don't know, but like, it's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> I, I didn't know there was this Purdue hate. I mean, as someone who, you know, went to a, a, a big 10 school, at least for grad school, it's uh, just amongst I, the I Indiana schools. Yeah. 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 I mean, okay. yeah. Yeah. Like, like I grew up in Ohio with a lot of Buckeye fans too. And they're just like, yeah, Purdue's also there, you know, but like amongst the, <laughs> it's just, yeah. The, the people that like Purdue are the people that went to Purdue. They don't have a lot of those uh, auxiliary fans, I guess. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Come back next week. We'll talk more about Conference USA football. We have a Sunbelt show and an AAC podcast as well. I uh, recommend you check those out. If you want to follow us on Twitter at J O E H I O underscore at Eric C Henry underscore and at Underdog Dynasty for updates from the site. Got a lot of content from this past weekend up that you can go check out. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, more fun conversation for you. Uh, happy football watching, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. 